passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, we are here on the show, and... It's always great to catch up with this man. He is Paul the Mauler Lazenby, uh, joining us under unfortunate circumstances following the passing over the weekend of uh, a pioneer in mixed martial arts, no holds barred, in Paul the Polar Bear Varlins. Uh, Paul, how are you doing today? I'm all right. I mean, obviously not happy about the news, but uh, holding together pretty well regardless. Uh we spoke over the weekend and, you know, Paul Varlins was someone that you got to know uh, quite a bit. And just kind of going back, was your first introduction to the polar bear, Paul Varlins, through his first appearance uh, at UFC 6? Tell me a little bit about your introduction to Paul. Yeah, I mean, I was on, I, I jumped on the UFC bandwagon right away. So I was there from UFC 1. And and when Varlins you know, reared his sizable head in the octagon, um, I, that's one guy that I really thought connected to because even before I was a fighter and uh, you know, I, I didn't become a fighter until 97, but even before I was a fighter, if I would watch movies, like if I watched blood sport, then Jackson was my favorite guy. It was always the big hulking brawler that wasn't necessarily technique intensive. And then when I saw a real life equivalent of that in Varlins, I was a fan right away. So I really dug the guy. And um, so it was really cool for me that uh, when I was in Japan, I was staying at the Pancras dojo and about to have my third fight. And they said, uh, Paul Varlins is going to be on the show. We brought him in. And uh, so it was it was cool for me. And he came in. Uh, they always brought the fighters in a week in advance. So you could you know, sleep off the jet lag and train the dojo and get ready for your fight. And uh, I used that week to do for him what Guy Mesner had previously done for me and kind of educate him on the peculiarities of the Pancras rule set and the, the you know sometimes selective ways in which the rules were enforced and things like that uh, to get him ready. And uh, he was he was a really good guy, man. Really eccentric dude, but just an honest to goodness, genuine good guy. Uh, never got the sense that he was trying to use his weight to intimidate people or, or uh, no insecurities about him at all. Just uh, I really took to him uh, very quickly. What did you assess in terms of like his, uh, you know, taking like a, a big athletic background, was a standout player at, at San Jose State University, and then, you know, finding himself in this brand new world uh, at this point when you met him he's he's probably about two years into it and with that you know came uh fame through that first generation of ufc fighters that got a lot of exposure by that point in 97 where do you think his head was at towards fighting like it was something he seemed like pretty serious about yeah he was really passionate about it and uh, it, was, it was frustrating for him because it took him that two years to kind of hit his stride as a fighter. Um, and, you know, he, like I said, he wasn't the most technical guy. He relied heavily on his size, and, and it took a little bit for the technique to catch up. Um, he had been training rather seriously when he got to Pancras. I mean, he still wasn't ripped, but he was down to about 320 at that time, which was which is a good weight for him. You know, he's been as high as 360 in fights before. And, um, you know, he just – I think it frustrated him that just as he felt like he was starting to hit his stride as a fighter – that was the beginning of the dark days for the sport when John McCain was trying to get the sport banned and, you know, cable companies wouldn't carry it. And it was, 
you know, the money was going away and it was really harder to find fights. So um, it was a tough thing for him. And I think he was really happy to be in Japan where the sport was really healthy and thriving. And, and uh, you know, that was, that was the last year where I would say Pancras was the number one organization in the world um, above all others in MMA. So, you know, he got to, he went from the bright lights of the UFC and when they started fading, he got to, to be in the bright lights of Pancras as well. What were some of the uh, bits of advice that you imparted on him being over in Japan? That can be a culture shock for a lot of people. Uh, tell me a bit about just, you know, the advice that you had for him to, to adapt. Well, the one thing was, um, you know, with uh, cage grabbing, having been legal in UFC, you know, I, I just told him, look, dude, uh, you're fighting one of their guys. In fact, his opponent was uh, a good friend of mine, Rishi Yanagazawa, who was one, my first opponent in uh, Pancras, and actually my first combat sport opponent of any type. And uh, so I just told him, look, you know, Aji's the hometown guy. We call him Aji. And uh, said, so I know it might be instinct to hang on to the ropes for stability, but the first time they see you go near those ropes, they're going to call a rope escape. And, of course, in Pancras, you grab the ropes, then – it's like pro wrestling. You grab the ropes, they have to let go of you, but you lose a point. And, and if you finish the fight with less points than your opponent, then you lose. So I said, treat those ropes as if they were coated with poison unless you uh, unless you really need to grab them. And sure enough, right at the very beginning of the fight, Aji grabbed the body lock and kind of ran Paul into the ropes. And he overhooked the rope and then threw his arm way up in the air just to show the referee, I'm not grabbing it, I'm not grabbing it. Uh, so it was little stuff like that. And there were there were... You know, there was, and I'm not throwing shade on the Pancras organization, but it just seemed like sometimes uh, one American fighter once told me when I asked him, uh, how quickly did, did they stand you guys up when, when the action's on the ground? And he said, well, if you're on top, pretty quick. If the Japanese fighter's on top, you're going to be down there for a while. <laughs> so um, you know, I, so I, I just warned him about little stuff like that. And then he took it all really well in stride. And actually him and Aji ended up having... Um, you know, arguably the fight of the night, or you could call it the fight of the night if uh, Fanaki had not lost his uh, title on the on the same show, making it a historic occasion. But um, the, those guys went at it hammer and tongs, and there was blood all over the ring. By the time they were done, it was just he uh, he adapted to that rule set really well. You know, he he only had like a short time in in fighting; like it really lasted about three years. But when you look at the the guys that he fought, it seemed that. He was, you know, had, didn't have any inhibitions about put me in there with, with whoever. When you look at the likes of Mark Kerr, a young Igor Vovchanchin, like very early on, Marco Huas. And I mean, some of these, like at the end of his career, he fights twice in one night in Brazil and five days later flies to the Netherlands to fight Dick Fry. Like this was a guy that just seemed to be like, this just epitomized to me mid to late nineties, no holds barred where it was, you know, you would be like a ping pong ball going across the world and fighting whoever was put in front of you. And of course, as you know, the rule sets varied so much from country to country. So you yes. had to adapt to that too. But it, it made me kind of sad that he didn't have more of a run in Japan because they, um, Japanese fans mindset is very much different from the average North American mindset where in North America, unfortunately, you know, if you lose, then in a lot of fans eyes, you suck. You know, it doesn't matter how hard you fought. Like, well, you lost, you're a loser. In Japan, they love you before you even get in the ring or cage because you're a fighter, and they know what that, that means. And if you fight hard, and I'm living proof of that because I had no business in Pancras when I got there. I lied my way in with no experience, but I fought hard, and that's all they cared about. So uh, the, Paul, you know, having that kind of fighting spirit, I think if he had spent more time in Japan, he would have been even more popular. He was already a draw, but he would have been more popular and more of a draw if he had stayed there for a while. Uh, it, it reminds me of a story he told me where when he fought Mark Kerr, which is – one of the more disturbing beatings you're going to see in, in uh, I'm not going to call it MMA, in, like in, in no-holds-barred history, where yeah. 
Paul was too tough to quit, and Kerr was holding him down and violently, brutally beating him. And uh, it went on for a long time, and Paul said, that was in Brazil. And when I was walking to the ring, the Brazilians, they, they loved Kerr, and they were, they were screaming at him, he's going to die. And he said, walking out of the ring after that fight, he said, they were swarming the guardrails, trying to touch me and shake my hand and telling me what, like, what, a, what a warrior I was. And they, they loved me for that. And that, that, that loss got him over in, in uh, Brazil. So uh, that, that's the kind of guy he was. You know, anytime, anyone, anywhere, didn't duck anybody. You know, you can't look at the, the numbers of, of the record of a guy like that and see the true measure of him. Like Jeff Osborne from Hooking Shoot always said, a record is like a bikini. It shows you a lot, but it doesn't show you everything. And the, the win-loss part of his record did not show you everything about the fighting spirit of Paul Barnes. Did he talk to you at all about professional wrestling? This would have been, you know, about... You know, six months or so after he had done the the brief stint in ECW, did you two uh, bond at all over over that shared background? Yes, yeah, we, we talked a little bit about the infamous Taz incident, and uh, you know, he said there was a potato or two there. It was uh, it was his opinion that they were trying to uh, to legitimately knock him out uh, to make Taz look really good in ECW when he did that one match with them, but. Um, yeah, unfortunately, he, he didn't hate pro wrestling, um, but he didn't come away with, away with away from it with the best taste in his mouth. You know, you uh, you wrote a little bit about uh, Paul over the weekend, and I would be remiss not to uh, go over this one line and add. Uh, maybe you can add uh, some story to it when you noted that uh, Paul Paul returned the favor during our post fight partying. By sweet-talking a Nigerian gangster out of shooting me, Boss Rutan, and a few others after Boss's protege went semi-homicidal on the wrong guy. Uh, that is a Paul Lazenby sentence right there. I mean, can you share anything about uh, Paul uh, coming through in the clutch for you guys? Yeah, basically, I mean, there's, I'm going to leave a lot of details out here so as not to throw some of my friends under the bus. But yes, it, was, it was a very, very debaucherous and very crazy evening that was, that was right out of something out of a movie. We were in... Uh, we were in Rapungi, which is the party district of Tokyo. And one thing I didn't know before I went to Japan is it's got a very sizable Nigerian community. Uh, so you, you see a lot of Nigerians in Rapungi working security and, and uh, also working a lot of, you know, coloring outside the lines, as you, if you will, with regards to what they do for a living. So uh, we ended up uh, in an altercation. It was Leon Van Dyke, who is who was Boss Rutten's protege. Leon was a great dude. I freaking love Leon. But he's also a psychopath. He's, he's one of the most awesome psychopaths I've ever met, but he's freaking crazy, and he's a brute. And uh, so he got into it with uh, with a Nigerian gentleman on the street regarding something, I don't know what, and Leon ended up pummeling the guy into the ground, and we were with some Japanese girls, and of course, they they, they hung around Rapungi all the time. They knew who this guy was, and they started freaking out. I'm like, oh, okay, that's not good. And then another Nigerian gentleman who was a friend of the first guy came in and just looked at his friend, looked at Leon, looked at us, and said, you guys all have five minutes to live, and started dialing his cell. And uh, I, I, I didn't realize that Paul Varlins had a silver tongue in addition to all of his other, uh, other talents and gifts. But, man, he stepped in. I don't know how he did it, but he somehow got that guy to put his phone away and let us walk away. So, uh, you know, a posthumous thank you again. I thanked him a lot while he was alive. But uh, thank you again, Paul, for making sure that uh, we all made it out of Japan alive. How much um, contact did you have with Paul over the last couple of years? I know that you did interview him for uh, your book that came out in, a number of years ago, When We Were Bouncers. Uh, was that the last time you two had had a chance to talk? Uh, no, we talked a little bit after that. And it was, it was funny because this is the kind of guy Paul was. Because after that Japan trip, we didn't have any contact. And, you know, it was like 97, so the internet wasn't what it is now. And it wasn't as easy to maintain contact. 
so I just reached out to him cold um, in like 2014, I think. Uh, so the previous time I spoke with him was 1997. And I just, I said, I don't know if you remember me, but I'm Paul Lazy. And he remembered me right away and said, yeah, absolutely. You can have any bouncer stories I got. I got lots of stuff for you. Just completely open. You know, it, it was, uh, he was really cool. It was like, it was like a week had passed instead of like 15 years or whatever. Um, and then after that, we had a little bit of back and forth. He was actually, uh, he asked me to do it, but I, I honestly don't think I have a literary talent and I don't think I could have done it justice. He was asking if I was interested in helping him write his autobiography at one point, And I, and oh, I wow. recommended a couple of other people. Yeah. I, I recommend he go to somebody like Loretta Hunt because I think she'd be a lot more talented than me in, in that regard. But you know, it's too bad that that, that didn't get done. Um, you know, cause obviously, uh, he, his legacy would be a little bit better preserved if that book had gotten written, but uh, I take it as a point of pride that, uh, you know, managed to at least get him in when we were bouncers. And, and uh, so some of his stories are going to live on uh, coming out of his own mouth. I'm glad you brought that up because that, that's my final question here is that when, you know, an unfortunate story like this occurs and, you know, Paul Varlins, it was, you know, we're, we're talking about someone that first got into the UFC 25 years ago. But I mean, in the in the history of MMA. Does it worry you at all about preserving those historical figures and MMA's history itself? It seems like there's such a a small window when it comes to the memories for a lot of the fan base that the history of MMA is something that it's a young history, but one that still there are figures that were significant in in the growth of this. And you know that firsthand. Yeah, it's it's something that I noticed is a big difference between boxing and MMA is that boxing reveres its own history. And uh, you don't see people watching Jack Johnson matches and saying, well, Lennox Lewis would have murked that guy. No, they look at Jack Johnson. They say for that time and place, that guy was a pioneer. He invented defensive boxing. He worked out a way to beat everybody when the whole world was against him. And, and so in MMA, unfortunately, and I'm not trying to vilify the whole younger generation, but unfortunately right now, there's not as much of an appreciation for history. There's not as much of, of an appreciation for whose shoulders you're standing on in a lot of cases. And, you know, if it didn't happen in the last 10 minutes, well, then it didn't happen and it's worthless. And that's too bad. And MMA being a new sport, relatively new sport, that new mindset is attached to it. So the history often gets discarded. And it's really too bad because there was nothing more exciting, nothing cooler than than the MMA scene in the late 90s and early 2000s, you know. And, um, you know, people like Paul Marlins and Shayna Baszler and stuff like that, they just they don't get the credit they deserve. Jeff Osborne never gets mentioned. And without Jeff Osborne, I don't think there would have been a female MMA um, environment that would have been able to foster the Ronda Rousey phenomenon. He kept that sport alive for 10 years at his own personal expense. So, yeah, I think it is very, very important that we keep bringing up the old names and also showcasing the old product, which was so exciting. I pulled out some old IBC brutal Valley Tudo stuff for a friend of mine who's only about 10 years younger than me. And he couldn't believe that this stuff had gone on. All he knew was the Zufa UFC product. I said, no, dude, like MMA was, it was so many different things in so many different parts of the world. And he was glued to the screen. So um, yeah, we definitely need to keep preserving the past. We definitely need to keep bringing up names like Paul Varlins because he was a very integral part of building what MMA would later become. And he was a part of what I think will always be the most exciting era of the sport. 
Well, Paul, uh, I want to thank you just for, for taking a couple of minutes uh, to chat with me. A very important figure to talk about. And I, I think, that, you know, for history's sake, like these are figures that need to be discussed, their contributions, and you were someone that got to work with them uh, firsthand. Uh, if people want to uh, follow you, uh, you can check out Paul's uh, great book, uh, When We Were Bouncers, uh, including some tales from Paul the Polar Bear Varlins. You can follow him at Mahler MMA and anything else uh, going on, Paul, that you want to alert the listeners to. Yeah, my Instagram account is at Famous Bouncers, which is a reference to When We Were Bouncers. There's also a sequel, When We Were Bouncers 2. Uh, other than that, you know, just uh, I've got uh, the, the film industry, thankfully, in Vancouver, just starting to grind back into gear again. So working on that and uh, also building uh, my business around Black Oxygen Organics, which uh, I've got several AEW and WWE superstars. And there's been some uh, the very, very high-level MMA personalities, including Pat Militich and Boss Rutan, that are this is just the, the greatest supplement they've ever taken of me too. And um, injury took me out of the Canadian powerlifting championships last November, which I was planning on competing in after going on black oxygen, but I'm, I'm gearing up for that this year. So qualifying meet in May and then nationals in July. Well, excellent stuff. Oh, and that's uh, that, that link would be by for more information. By blackoxygen.com. All right. We'll definitely keep us updated on that, Paul. It's always great to catch up with you, uh, even when it's uh, unfortunate circumstances such as the passing of Paul Varlins. But thank you very much. Always great to chat with you. Thanks a lot, John. It's always great being on.